Welcome to Deeper Levels, the podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, comma, mostly. My name is Natalie Benet. I am an academic pathologist in Rhode Island. Today, I'm welcoming a dear friend and former colleague, Dr. Christina McLaughlin. Dr. McLaughlin is a native Oregonian and completed undergraduate medical school and pathology residency and a hematopathology fellowship in Oregon, and also a surgical pathology residency in Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic. She's been in private practice in the state of Colorado since 2010, and among her many achievements is extensive contribution to the literature and also various leadership positions. On a personal note, I will say she is a near constant source of comfort and wisdom and never fails to answer a text with sound advice, sympathy, or even a good meme. I'm happy to welcome her as my first guest here today to talk about laboratory testing, specifically as it relates to the novel coronavirus and the roiling pandemic that we are all living through right now. So first, we'll start with a brief recap of the news, followed by a segment, First Things First, in which we will dig into our guests' experiences. Then we will discuss COVID testing in three general parts. First, with a timeline of what has happened so far with testing, then which testing methods are available, and finally, how these tests have been and might be implemented during the pandemic. And then we will close with our final segment, final diagnosis, to wrap up our thoughts on the topic. So here we go. The news recap, briefly. As of about 3.45 today, there were approximately 585,000 confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus worldwide, with approximately 97,000 cases in the United States, which as of yesterday is the world leader in the number of cases. New York is emerging as the center for the disease in the United States with additional U.S. cities showing alarming growth, including but not limited to New Orleans, Detroit, and Chicago. Yesterday, the White House announced a plan to hopefully send certain areas of the country with less active disease, quote, back to work. But this plan, even at the White House's admission, is predicated on the ability to widely test, not only in order to find locations where the disease is relatively less common, but also to identify asymptomatic carriers test contacts of known positive individuals, and also to identify those who are immune to the disease and can theoretically return to society safely, although even the data on that is somewhat limited. So first things first, Dr. McLaughlin, tell us a little bit or a lot about your background and how you came to work where you do. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Natalie. That was a... Yeah. Lovely intro. I came to Denver to work primarily at a bone marrow transplant center that's in downtown Denver. And Denver was attractive to me because my parents lived here and I had two kids. And so we wanted to be close to the grandparents. Understandable. But the current practice of lab medicine is a very fluid and dynamic field with a lot of you know changes and mergers. And so in the last few years, I've kind of moved through a few different companies and hospitals navigating those changes in our market. And I currently work at a large community hospital that I very much like that's part of the university system, doing both surgical and hematopathology. Mm -hmm. When is the first time you remember hearing about COVID-19? Do you remember what the source was and how did you feel about it at the time? I'm a news junkie, so I spent a lot of time listening to um, NPR and and reading the news. But I was most especially interested in these initial reports of COVID coming out of China because my mother's uh, South Korean and we 
we were scheduled to spend two weeks this April in Seoul, South Korea, and Japan on a multi-generational family trip as my kids and I have never been to South Korea to meet our extended family there. So once I heard about this potential coronavirus coming out of, out of China, I was very intrigued. I also have a brother who lives in Australia and does a lot of finance work through Hong Kong and China. And so he was sending me daily texts about uh, what his colleagues were experiencing in China. Plus, mm. it's, it's just fascinating. I mean, being a pathologist, you know, we uh, are well versed in microbiology and pandemics. And so, you know, it just kind of falls in our areas of interest. I, I agree. I agree. And I, I was, when I wrote this question, I tried to remember, and I know that I heard about it, but honestly, I, I feel that in our lifetime, there have been multiple, you know, so-called, or, I mean, genuine pandemics, right? I can think of Zika, even uh, H1N1, and it, it always seemed to kind of flare up and then sort of just blow over, you know? So I, I think I saw it and I knew, but I never... I, it didn't. When I first heard about it, I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't scared. I don't know if that makes sense. And yeah. then I remember a, a picture that kind of caught my breath. They showed a street. I don't even know where it was. I think it was in Wuhan. And they showed like before and after. And the before was all these people going to work. And the street was so full of people. It was just like, how could you get anywhere? How could you even ride a bike? But there were people riding bikes. And then they showed it during the sort of lockdown and there was no one on the street. And I thought, huh, you know, <laughs> I remember being like, huh, okay. And then I just, I don't know, I guess we're busy and I didn't really think about it. My next question for you is today is March 27th between then and now, how has your opinion changed? And was there one moment when you recall thinking, I mean, maybe for you, it was around your trip when you decided to call it off, which I know you did. I know the ending to that story. <laughs> was there a moment where you thought like, this is not, this is not going to be contained. This is going to be a bigger problem. Well, it's always hard to predict. I mean, the worst thing is when you pretend that you know something and you don't. Everything about this coronavirus is unknown. We're all just trying to figure it out as we go mm -hmm. along. I do remember my brother would send me these emails and he'd be like, oh, my friends, you know, in, in China say that people are just dropping on the streets. And I'm like, oh, that seems like a bit of an exaggeration and and you know and he kept asking me about the death rate because it seemed really high and I'm like well the one thing we don't know is the denominator so when you're calculating something like you know the percentage of fatalities the most important thing is the number on the bottom of that fraction and if you aren't testing you don't know what that number is so mm -hmm. you know if so I didn't think it was going to be as bad as it is is and, and in part, I think this it's very human nature to not take things seriously until it seems like it's immediately affecting you or yours. Yeah, definitely. Um, like yeah. Uh, Zika was really interesting, but Ebola, I think, really kind of terrified people because mm -hmm. it was so it's so dramatic and sensational and graphic, right? Yeah, yeah. And just I mean, everybody's seen what hot zone or something, you know, right? Like in that it, book and thinking that movie, of but, your yeah. Yeah, Thinking of more graphic. your insides liquefying is, is very attention grabbing, whereas something that mm -mm. sounds kind of like the flu. Mm -hmm. I mean, the flu is a very serious illness and it kills many mm -hmm. people, way more than most people think. 
in any given year, right. but but that right. seems commonplace to us because we're like, oh, colds and flu. Like, how many yeah. times do people we're say, used to it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I had the flu, and you're like, really? You just had a cold? Because if you had the flu, you would know. <laughs> I always ask them. I'm like, did you get? Did you have a flu test? <laughs> Because I want to know. I want to know if you actually had the flu. That's right. Okay. People, like we, I mean, people just use that word to talk about stomach bugs. So it's, absolutely. it's confusing. But it's yeah. kind of interchangeable. So for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. the moment when yeah. it, so the- it, when I felt, I mean, I think the way that you can relate to it most, I remember when Tom Hanks announced that he had coronavirus and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't, Tom Hanks can't yeah. die of this virus. He's a national treasure. And no, then, and the and the funny thing was he only got a test because he was in Australia, right? He wasn't even here. Yes. At the time, he would not have gotten a test here. So we would well, I don't know. know. The entire like NBA seems to have gotten a test. but That's true. That's true. That's but, you know, true. they do that's interact true. a lot yeah. with the public. So I guess that's probably, uh, yeah. probably good. Yeah. But now. And sort of by, by yeah. It's, it is very serious now, and I spend every day trying to impart to my mother, who falls into the high-risk category because of her age, that this is serious mm-hmm. and that she should stay home and that, no, she does not need to go to the grocery store for a jalapeno. It's not worth it. Oh, my it. gosh. Wow. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stubborn moms. That's that's interesting. So how has work changed for you during this time? Have your caseloads changed? What about interaction with colleagues and other healthcare pr- practitioners and has your policy has your hospital set any policies to limit the spread or protect healthcare workers yeah it's been it's been pretty interesting cuz as you know being in medicine we're like and especially laboratory medicine we're one of the most highly regulated areas of the world i mean everything we do is is well under the microscope, <laughs> I must say, by so many different regulatory agencies. And to see so much change in such a rapid period of time is insane. I've never mm-hmm. experienced mm-hmm. it before. I don't think, you know, anyone of our generation has seen this before, but like, you know, pathologists working from home. I mean, that's very strictly regulated, but now, yes. you know, a lot of our colleagues are working from home. It, it mm-hmm. used to require a very strict, like inspection of your home office and you know, insurance that you are maintaining appropriate patient confidentiality and quality control. But our our pathology organizations were able to get a waiver um, from CLIA yeah. for people to practice from home, which I just never thought would happen. I totally agree. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And, and have you noticed a change in your case volume at your hospital? So I've been very impressed with, with, the way Colorado uh, has been handling this crisis, we we've thankfully been behind, you know, the coast in terms of of where we are on the curve of infection. So we've had a little bit more time to prepare, and we've been able to learn from the experiences of our colleagues on both coasts and in Italy and Europe and China. So I think I think that the hospitals' approach and the state approach has been. Um, Excellent. We're under statewide mandate to stay at home, except for essential workers. And, you know, as we work in a hospital and medicine, we're considered essential. But what what my colleagues and I are trying to do is kind of trade off who's in the hospital at any one time to to minimize the possibility of infection. And then a lot of, in, you know, face-to-face interactions have really disappeared. There's a lot mm-hmm. more communicating via 
uh, video conferencing or sending micro photographs instead of actual slides. Clinicians will call us instead of dropping by the office. We used to call back, fro- I mean, we used to go into the OR with frozen results, mm-hmm. but now we're calling them. And that's both to reduce the possibility of infecting the patient, getting infected ourselves, and mm-hmm. to preserve personal PPE. protective yeah. equipment. Yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I And it, just as the pathologists who may or may not ever listen to this, I always found as a resident, I learned best across the scope from someone. And most places, most people I know have sort of cut that out, the across the scope teaching, because you're maybe a foot away from someone else talking and breathing. And was your practice, I mean, a lot of private practices don't do sort of like face-to-face QA. So maybe that wasn't as much of a... Well, we all have double-headed scopes. And so we would Mm -hmm. share you know, we would double scope difficult cases and now we're more likely to just hand it off. And everyone has different personal tolerances. Some people wipe the slides, some don't, you know, people stand at your door instead of coming into your office to talk to Mm -hmm. you. Do you wipe your slides off before you touch them? I don't. I just try really Mm -hmm. hard to wash my hands well. I use a lot of hand sanitizer. And the really hard part for me is to not touch my face, especially because it's allergy season. I really want to rub my eyes. No, I well, my nose itches. It does all the time, so much, all the time. So now I feel like that little bunny. I think it's from Bambi. I don't remember. He's just always doing like the little oh thumper. Is he even Bambi? He's from anyway. Yeah, he makes that little. I just do that all the time now. And (laughs) then and I. Yeah. And I tell myself if I want to scratch my nose, I have to go wash my hands first. And most of the time, then my nose just stops itching because my nose decides that it's not that important, but it's very hard. And I I don't wash my slides either, but a friend told me that I should wear gloves so that I would not be tempted to touch my hands. But then I feel guilty about wasting gloves because people who are treating patients actually need them. So I wear gardening gloves now when I sign out slides like a Ah. crazy person. I don't know. It reminds me not to touch my face. Because my hand is a different color than it should be, which well, is um, kind of crazy. I know people who have been wearing gloves of some sort just to remind them not to touch your because it's well yeah. ingrained in our brains. If we're wearing gloves, you don't touch anything don't touch your... because usually and the other you're thing, touching something yeah. gross. Yeah, and I put a bunch of lotion on my hands before I do that too because I'm really, really washing my hands oh, these that's days and they're all kind of cracked. <laughs> so it's it's like a little sauna thing, you know. And I'm looking a little past spa there. action. <laughs> it's very, I'm very fancy. Well. <laughs> my, and- And in order to, you know, make myself feel better about still being at home and working in the hospital, I immediately change into scrubs when I get into the hospital and then, you know, put on normal clothes. And so with the scrub jacket, I tend to use that to open doors or Mm -hmm. my face or something Mm -hmm. just so... Mm -hmm. Just so I'm not constantly touching things with my hands and then touching my face. Yes, yes. It's hard though. It's I've I've trained myself in the few weeks before we started having community spread in Rhode Island. So I felt like I was ready by the time that happened, which was nice. But well, yeah, go ahead. What about tumor board? So we're still doing tumor board with the essential people in person, but we all sit like four chairs apart. Yeah, I think that's what they're doing at our institution as well. The governor set a rule here about 10 people meeting. So they actually had to like stop letting some people come and have a call-in option. But I think that's been difficult for them to sort of orchestrate. Most of my friends that I talked to at other academic institutions are now doing either like Zoom tumor board or Microsoft Teams or something. But I had I had a friend the other day who texted me and said, I'm at tumor board from home in my pajamas. And I was like, that's 
ideal. Yeah, that would be honestly. fantastic. I'd be so happy. And you know, honestly, what are scrubs, but pajamas? Just yeah. Of- and if anybody can only see my face, I'm not, it's seven o'clock in the morning or in private practice, some of those tumor boards started before seven, like that pajama Absolutely. pants would be fine. That'd be fine. And in follow-up yeah. too, our workload has decreased because yeah. all the elective cases have been canceled. So I'm um, hearing that a lot. Yeah. We mm-hmm. still have a ton of cancer cases, so it's not as mm-hmm. light as you might think, but it, it's definitely less. Well, and it's probably sort of what I experienced at when I worked in Denver, I worked at a place that had almost no biopsies. So it was all cancer resections almost. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's a whole different kind of job than a place where you know, now where I am, I see a lot of things like cervical biopsies, which, by the way, the volumes of those have gone down. Pap smears, those uh-huh. have also gone down. So it, it is an interesting transition to just be looking at big, complicated cases all day. Definitely. It is. You kind of miss mm-hmm. the gallbladder to so kind of relax your mind before you look yeah. at the 19 part gyne resection. Yeah. But my friends yeah. in outpatient labs, yeah. though, they don't have anything. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, that's for them interesting. Right now. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think I told you that I heard a story of someone who was laid off. I have friends who've been, I don't know if it's technically furloughed when you're basically told to just come in every other day and given half your salary. I don't know what that's called, but they're basically sort of being reduced. And it's just interesting because I was talking about this with some other friends, pathologists, we're physicians, but I, I can't think of another branch of medicine where almost no clinical training is required. Not a transition year, not an intern year. I, I mean, even radiologists do. I, I can't think of anybody who doesn't really have any patient training during residency. So it's not as if we could be repurposed, you know? So It's very peculiar in this setting yeah. because, because, you know, we're all very proactive people and we really want to help our colleagues. But medicine is so specialized. It's really a tiny sliver of yeah. physicians and nurses that are really on the front line. And the rest of us, you know, don't have a lot that we can contribute right now other than to do our normal jobs and try to help, you know, prevent yeah. infection and conserve PPE. Yeah. yeah. And testing, which we're going to talk about, which is great. So what are you hearing from other healthcare providers in your daily practice about COVID-19? How are they feeling and handling this time? I think... It- it does feel like everyone's collectively holding their breath for, for what's to come, kind of the calm before the storm. But people are optimistic and prepared. I haven't seen any overt panic here, like in mm-hmm. my hospitals. I have heard of some at other places that are potentially getting hard hit. I think like everyone in the, you know, in the world right now, we're just anxious because we don't know what's going to happen. And I think Again, because we're all very proactive, busy people, we're used to doing something. We're action-oriented, and the waiting is kind of killing everyone. Isn't it? And it's – it's. I I just know that, that feeling when people keep saying, like, oh, we're X number of days behind fill-in-the-blank, France, Italy, the UK. It's like waiting for a storm to hit or something, and you don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just like – and I don't know. I don't know. We're planners too. I think physicians in general tend to be yes. type A people. So it's a very hard time. I, I totally agree. So my next question is, though, we hesitate to make predictions. Do you think the practice of medicine will change as a result of the COVID-19 I so. situation? How? I, really, I really hope so. Well, one, I mean, 
clearly we need to invest more time and money into public health. You know, medicine in the U.S. is so peculiar in that it's always been, again, we're action-oriented people. It's always been on doing something and not preventing things. Um, I think you hear that every day from from like internists and um, family practice where they're like, well, we don't get reimbursed at all for, you know, convincing someone to follow a healthy lifestyle, but, mm-hmm. but you get paid a lot of money to take out their appendix. So it's it, not that there's anything wrong with surgery or, or these active specialties, they all have their role, but, you know, collectively as a world, I guess we need to put more thought into preventing disease. It's just hard Mm -hmm. because everyone has such a short attention span. You want immediate results. And like this, you know, these stay in place and social distancing efforts, we won't know if they're effective for weeks. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. it may be difficult to say for sure that, you know, the outcome was because we did this. Um, Yeah. I just hope there are I mean, I think I sent you a couple of weeks back that chart that someone put out about the 1918 flu pandemic comparing, I, I believe it's St. Louis to Philadelphia. Yeah. And in St. Louis, they did social distancing. In Philadelphia, they had some giant parade. And the differences in the peaks and the sort of resolution of the outbreak. I was reading about the outbreak in Rhode Island, actually, and apparently here they didn't take it terribly seriously as well. So it does make me wonder if if there will be differences in places that implemented early, like in Ohio. I know they were one of the first ones to close schools versus someplace like maybe, hopefully not. I mean, I hope nothing happens badly, but in Florida where they still had spring break and you saw those pictures of all those young people on beaches. And I just looked at this animation the other day where they tracked some people's cell phones when they left the beach and they just fanned out all over the country. So those people all went home to their communities. You know, I've heard stories about kids coming home from spring break who are testing positive. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be difficult, you know, and, oh, this is very interesting today. The governor of Rhode Island is so concerned about New Yorkers leaving New York to come down here to their vacation homes that she ordered the state police to pull over any car from New York and get their information and find out if they're coming to stay in Rhode Island. And if they are, they're going to check on them and make sure they're staying in quarantine for 14 days. Wow. And I know. And they're going to go door to door in all these affluent beach towns and knock on everyone's door and ask them when they came from, where they came from when they got there. They're serious about it. You know, (laughs) it's crazy. Well, it is. And I think, I think New Orleans might be a good test case too, because they had Mardi Mm -hmm. Gras and look Mm -hmm. at how it's exploding there. It's just, they they seem really unprepared is not the word I'm looking for. They don't seem to have a very robust, like, you know, healthcare system down there. So I really worry about them. Well, I think Katrina kind of destroyed what they had and they've never quite Mm -hmm. recovered. I mean, I, I, I like to think that People will pay more attention to the infrastructure of healthcare in the U.S. and the medical field yeah. as a whole. You know, based on some of the stories I'm seeing online about, you know, differences of opinion between nurses and physicians, you know, regarding PPE and administrators' viewpoints about PPE, I'd hope that greater attention would be paid to, you know, to experts in their fields. Right. So yeah. I hope that there's more, more. Uh, a reversal of this trend we have of ignoring experts and scientists and more. I hope, um, I hope so too. Yes. Or, or like vaccines, science. right? I mean, yes. 
if yes. nothing else, if this ends the anti-vaccine movement, I'll be really grateful because... Well, and this terrible phenomenon of everyone thinking they're an expert in everything. It's not possible. So yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So well, yeah. So the final question into the getting to know you, which has been delightful, has the situation affected you personally um, outside of work? Do you feel increased stress not to have a leading question? And if so, how are you coping with that? I mean, I think it would be impossible during something as earth moving as a pandemic where everyone's ordered to stay in place that you not experience some stress. But, but so far, I guess I don't feel like it has been that dramatic an effect on me. I mean, my, my kids are pretty happy doing school from home and I'm, <laughs> I'm fortunate. They're at the right age. You're very lucky. <laughs> right. And I, I'm fortunate that my husband works from home. So for mm-hmm. me, childcare hasn't been a significant issue. I can still go work. Mainly I'm most concerned, you know, about my elderly relatives and trying to keep them safe. You know, I guess, I don't know if this is just an extension of the invincibility belief that you have when you're in your twenties, but I just, I guess I'm not so much worried that I would get it, just that I might be the typhoid or the COVID Mary that passes it on to everyone else. Oh, COVID Mary, did you did you make that up? That's brilliant. Well, like no, that. because I think other people have been using that because of typhoid Mary. She's been all over Definitely. like the internet. Although now we're hearing all these scary stories about young people needing, you know, extensive, you know, innovation and ventilation, and I think oh, their absolutely. survival likelihood is is higher. What I worry about is what if I get sick and then, you know, my mind goes down these what ifs, which I have to just trim back. But if if you're young and you get sick and you can get treatment, you can almost definitely recover. If you're young and you get sick and the healthcare system is totally overwhelmed, your prognosis is probably pretty terrible if you're someone who goes to the point of needing sort of, you know, intervention. So I just hope that we don't start seeing an increase in number of cases to the point where people are having to make just terrible decisions about sort of healthcare, you know, allocation Absolutely. of resources. So that, that's like my nightmare scenario that I have to just sort of try not to think about. But when young people say like, oh, the older people are the ones at risk, I'm like, yeah, but you're assuming the healthcare system is going to be there to catch you. And it might not be if we well, get to a point where... Yeah. Especially since we have this vaping epidemic in young people and, you know, we had all those vape lung cases. So you have to wonder if vaping and, you know, damages lungs, like, is it predisposing all these youngsters to severe COVID infections? Yeah, I hope not. But maybe that will be another silver lining that we can talk people out of vaping because it's... That would be a whole nother topic. But let's get on to talking about testing. When I sat down to figure out what we wanted to talk about. I realized that we could probably talk about this for about 10 hours. (laughs) The first thing I did just for myself was I made a timeline of basically the bare bones of testing and when this happened. So it seems like, and this is still up for debate, I know, but it's, it's sort of sort of coming out that this was happening maybe late November, December in China by January 20th. I'm sorry. The virus was sequenced on, and the, released on the 11th and 12th of January, 2020. In January 20th, the first case of confirmed coronavirus was noted in the United States in a resident of Seattle who had visited relatives in Wuhan. 
on January 21st, two things happened. The CDC confirmed it had finalized its own test, and a scientist in Germany described his test for a protocol for testing for SARS-CoV-2. So that was about 10 days after the genome was released. February 5th, a South Korean company called C-Gene, I think that's how you say it, had the first version of their test ready in South Korea. On February 5th, the CDC sent out its test kits to about 100 testing centers around the United States, which as far as I can tell are like public health centers. Up until this point, the CDC in Atlanta had been testing cases of suspected COVID or SARS-CoV-2. They had done about 500 tests up to that point. When the kits went out, multiple labs reported problems with validation, and all testing continued to be done at the CDC. On February 10th, the CDC notified the FDA of problems with the reagents. And this is something that I really wanted to get into, but it's not actually easy to find out what the problems were. I found one source that said the negative control was not working. The the kit contained DNA unrelated to SARS-CoV-2, and the assay should not have reacted, but in many, it was reacting. So I don't know if that was a contamination issue in that reagent they were sending out, but regardless, by February 26th, the CDC and FDA lifted regulations and allowed labs to perform their own tests, and they took out the reagent from their test that was problematic and said that it didn't have to be used anymore. So it sounds like there's not a negative control in the test anymore, but I also couldn't really put that together. February 29th, New York State is authorized to use its tests, and additionally, all labs who performed high-complexity testing could use their tests. On March 6th, the President of the United States was quoted as saying testing would be available to anyone who wanted one. On March 13th, he announced that commercial labs were developing their own tests. On March 21st, Cepheid announced a PCR-based test with a 45-minute turnaround time. And on March 24th, a PCR-based bedside testing from MESA Biotech was available with a 30-minute turnaround time. So it seems like it's sort of going in the right direction. And I just wanted to briefly bring up the South, South Korean story, because I think it's so interesting that the United States and South Korea had their positive cases the same day. And why did they basically have a test ready to go so quickly? Well, they had a really bad experience with MERS in 2013, which you might know about because you have relatives there, which I had not really focused on. It it was a big economic um, hit for their country and they had 38 people die. Half of the people who were infected were infected in the hospital. And after that, they enacted reforms, which gave the government power to instantly approve testing. So within weeks of the viral genome sequencing, they had four companies with tests available, and they could test 10,000 people per day, uh, per day. And their fatality rate since has remained very low. They're, the key there is that they test and they isolate positive cases. And this was crazy to me. They removed people from their homes, which is what they did in China, but they released all the movements of the people who tested positive by tracking their cell phone data. So they have a map you can look at. So you can figure out if you were anywhere near these people. And testing is widely available. They do drive-through testing where people stay in their cars and also these walk-up phone booths, which I sent you. These are fascinating. I am 
amazed. I mean, the like you said, the lengths they go to protect their healthcare workers and you have nurses wearing trash bags and people reusing the same N95 mask for a week in the United States. It's totally crazy to me. Oh, yeah. The CDC says it's okay to wear a bandana if you don't have anything else. I, when I saw that, I think I almost burst into tears. I was like, how can they say that they know it's not true? <laughs> like, it's Of course, it's better than nothing, but what are we talking about? Right it's now? not better than nothing. <laughs> I, I mean... mean for for non-medical people who might possibly be listening, a bandana is not good personal protective equipment. I mean, you might definitely as well just, not. You might as well just I mean, lick the floor or something. I mean, like, if you have if you have COVID nineteen and you're a member of the public and you're going to go into a hospital, I guess putting something over your face so that when you cough, you don't spray the room with your yuck is probably better than nothing. But as a physician or a healthcare worker treating people who are coughing in your face, yeah, it wouldn't make me feel very safe. That's all I know. Not at all. Well, so yeah, go ahead. I think, you know, one of the basic things that we should discuss in this comparison is the importance of testing. Uh, So why is testing important? In something like a pandemic where you have a unknown virus that no one has any immunity to, it's most mm-hmm. important to identify who's infected and isolate them so they can't transmit that infection to everyone else. And they call this the Goldilocks virus that everyone was really worried about because it it is more lethal than most diseases we deal with, but it's also easily transmitted, which is is really challenging, especially if you have asymptomatic or, or very mild symptoms in people who are passing the virus on without mm-hmm. without knowing. Mm-hmm. So, so why is that important? Well, you know, South Korea was able to test you know tens of thousands of people really rapidly to find the asymptomatic carriers, whereas here in the yes. U.S. we had no ability essentially to no test. no ability. I remember the. People would say, you know, you couldn't have a test unless you had traveled from China. But this was at the point where there were already descriptions of Italy and how apocalyptic it was there. And I was thinking, like, what are you talking about? Like, there's people flying here from Italy right now. Why aren't they getting tested? And it took them weeks to add that on. Absolutely. It was so frustrating. And then at the point we knew there was community spread in places like New York City. Nobody was saying if you've traveled to New York, you can have a test. They they weren't there. St- as far as I know, they're still not saying that. So it's it's deeply frustrating yes. as someone who is, border, you know, like a, a borderline anxious person to have people saying things to your face and pretending like it's backed up with evidence when you know that it's not. <laughs> Absolutely. Or saying that there's testing available when there really isn't. So there were there are yeah. so many, it's almost like everything that could go wrong, Murphy's Law, right? Everything that could go yeah. wrong did. Well, you know, South Korea was well prepared for this because they were because, scared by that prior right, you know, mayor's right. episode. So, and but it's not, it's not just that. So when they stockpiled the reagents that you need to do this testing, right. mm-hmm. they had people prepared to implement the testing immediately. They had a government that was willing to put that testing into 
um, practice without having it go through the standard like six months, nine months. Of- no, right. They understood the importance of basically fast tracking it and saying, you know, go f- like do it, get yes. it out there. I mean, I think there was some form of validation wherein the central lab in Korea, I don't understand the structure of it, but they had positive samples and negative samples and they made the people like Seagen send their test and then they Yes. made sure that it worked, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't as if they just said, do whatever you want, but it, they, they definitely cut a lot of the red tape that it seems like in the United States. And I, I still would love, cause it, I, I, I even read the package insert of the CDC's test and it, it doesn't really explain to me what happened and why it took them so long to fix it. Cause it seems like, you know, if, if when they realized it was broken, they had to know that it was going to take them weeks to fix it. Well, so, I don't think it, I don't think it was quite as simple as just a, you know, a problematic reagent, but let's, let's finish up yeah. with South Korea. I will also point yeah. out too, yeah. that it's a smaller country and it's more yeah. uniform in its ability to approach this. And you know, yeah. this is a crass generalization, but they're more society-based and less interested in individualism and libertarian tendencies. So it's a lot easier for yeah. them yeah. to say yeah. to everyone, please stay home so you don't infect your neighbor. Well, Whereas- and and if you're infected, we're going to take you out of your home. Right. I, I just, I cannot it imagine that happening in the United <laughs> States. I don't think they even did that in Italy. And they're even talking about having hotels in some cities so that if you do test positive, you can go stay there. And I just don't think most people will do that. And it's and and most of the clusters in China came from family spread. So I, I don't I, I'm I'm afraid. Yeah. So I mean, so that system just in general wouldn't work here. But testing yeah. is still key to our response, yes. and it's not too late yeah. to fix that. So we could talk yeah. a little bit about the basics of the test. Yeah, yeah, I did. I had a question that I was hoping, since I consider you the superior laboratory scientist between the two of us, the first frontline testing. And the majority of testing so far has been performed, as far as I know, with PCR-based testing or polymerase chain reaction, which has advantages and disadvantages. Can you chat a little bit about PCR testing and how, you know, what are the good things about it and some of the some of the drawbacks? Well, so so once they had published the genome of the virus, basically what what labs could do is pick parts of that genome that were identifying that were different enough from say other coronaviruses or other viruses in general that you could use that as as a tag that says hey this is covid you know 19 and and then it, but it doesn't have to be the same like each lab can choose a slightly different you know part mm-hmm. of that genome to test that's kind of up to each lab the technology itself has been around forever and it basically it's kind of like a copy paste so you you take a sample you uh, use some reagents to break it down, and then you look for for the the genetic information of interest. And using polymerase chain reaction and reagents, you create this reaction that basically amplifies that area of interest over and over again until it's big enough that you can detect it. And so it's it's simple, and every molecular lab across the country can do PCR. I mean, a lot of people have probably done it in in some of their undergraduate classes, any high complexity lab that just molecular can easily develop their own PCR test. But usually in the U.S., it's highly regulated and you have to do an extensive validation with positive controls and negative controls to establish basics like, you know, sensitivity, which is, uh, you know, how small 
how small an amount of your target can you detect with the test and specificity, which is, you know, is what you're detecting truly the disease you're looking for, or is it something else? Like you don't want yeah. a test that picks up, you know, the flu as well as COVID-19. You want it to be just yeah. your target. And then you also have to establish whether you, you know, it's repeatable. Like every time you test it, will you get the same results? And, and usually that takes anywhere from like six to nine months and you can make it faster, but you have to keep reams of data and often, you know, submit it when you're being inspected, which we're inspected all the time. Yeah. Um, all the time. And if you're not being inspected, you're preparing for inspection and documenting things for inspection. So. Absolutely. And that's called a lab developed test. I mean, the alternative is using a kit test, like an FDA approved test. And that's what most of your point of care tests are, or something that's already been worked up by a specific company. It's gone through all of these levels of FDA approval. And those are usually easier to use and easier to validate, but they take a long time to make. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, and usually they're mm-hmm. expensive because it's only one company that makes that specific test and only works with that specific machine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in terms of PCR based testing, like you said, but what are some other disadvantages that you think of with PCR? Testing? Well, you can get contamination if mm-hmm. you, you don't have a clean lab. That's usually the thing that most people are concerned about. And sampling is always an issue. So it's a garbage in garbage out kind of situation. So if you, mm-hmm. if you don't get, a good sample or the sample deteriorates, then it doesn't matter how much you try to copy paste to amplify. If it's what dead or if for. you, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I told you that I had a flu test done and the nurse just sort of like gingerly swabbed my nose. And I told her, I'm like, no, go for it. Just cram that, <laughs> just get in there. Cause if you don't get the nasopharyngeal cells and you're, it, it's, and it, to right. get a good sample, it it's not pleasant, you know? And I've also read that, that, PCR-based testing, like you sort of said, it's not a point-of-care thing. You have to be in a pretty substantially sized lab. It's not something you can do at the, you know, necessarily like in a outpatient clinic or Absolutely. something like that. You can't so, do it at yeah. home in a kit. You have to have a specialized yeah. machine in a very clean lab. And, and mm-hmm. it can take a couple of hours. The main yeah. reason why we're seeing such testing delays is, one, the lab's got such a late start because of multiple issues. And now they're so backlogged, it you mm-hmm. know, it's taking forever. They just don't have enough personnel and enough testing mm-hmm. capability. Plus the, all the materials that you need for testing are hard to find because they're running out of reagents them. now. Yeah. And in like the worst possible luck, the, you know, the nasopharyngeal swabs are, swabs are made in Lombardy, Italy, along with the viral I, media. I've heard that. <laughs> and oh, then personal I protective know. devices are mainly made in Wuhan, China. I know. I know. You um, cannot write this. I, I mean... You know, there's three companies that make the reagents that you need for PCR, and everyone thought that that would be enough overlap that we wouldn't have supply issues. But when the whole world is looking for the same things, mm-hmm. it, it creates Al- problems. Yeah. Although I did read that CGen is sending 100, starting, I think it's already started, it's about to start, 100,000 test, kit, test kits a day or a week to LA soon. Oh, that's fabulous. And so they must be doing relatively okay if they have that money (laughs) to give away. So I don't know. Well, so let's talk about what happened with the testing here. So my, you found maybe a little bit more information than I did. My understanding is that the CDC's kit worked really well, but that one of the reagents was faulty and that and, that, and it was the control. It was the control that the was control? broken. And so it was the negative control was testing positive. They sent these out, and when labs started yeah. using them, they they called the CDC and they're like, "This 
there's something wrong. Is it working? Right. Uh, But it wasn't just that. It's also the logistics. So, and this is probably due a lot to underfunding and understaffing of the CDC and public health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they, they had a lot of delays and issues with managing the test information coming back from all the health departments and all of these labs. Like, and, yeah. You know, in an ideal situation, you and I both know this because we both medical directors, when you do a test, it will automatically interface with the resulting system so that there's right. no manual entry. You don't have to auto like, verification. Absolutely. Because anytime <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you introduce manual entry, you introduce the potential for mistakes and and backlogs. Right. Yeah. Both. And so, ideally, sort of the worst possible. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Ideally, this would be automatically interface that when you ran this test, the CDC would have the info and that would give them mm-hmm. the population data they needed to, in order to, you know, look at the epidemiology of this pandemic, but also there wouldn't be resulting mistakes and they didn't have the staffing or the infrastructure in place for that resulting to happen. And it created a lot of backlog and yeah. delayed information. And, you know, so why did the CDC have their own test? Why didn't we use the WHO test? I mean, yeah. supposedly it's for quality control. Is it that much different from the WHO test? They probably have a different, you know, string of genetic material that they're looking for, but it's essentially going to be the same test. It's, it's very similar. I think they added an additional primer or whatever, like, you know, viral focus to ours compared to the one from Germany that the WHO adopted. But I think they were very similar. Yeah, they were And similar. so, you know, so why didn't we just use theirs? I, you know, I can't answer that. But Hubris, <laughs> I, I, would, I would posit. I mean... Especially once we realized there was a problem with our test, it seems like we probably could have just approved theirs and just started using it right then. I don't know how much it, it seems like by that point, we were pretty far already behind the eight ball, but it feels like a Greek, you know, myth where, where the hero is smitten by the gods for his hubris. And and you can watch it. And, you know, it's kind of like when you do like a root cause analysis or something and they call it like the Swiss cheese theory. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where like there's 10 steps along the way where something could have been caught and it's like each piece is a piece of Swiss cheese. And for some reason in that instance, all the holes line up and just falls through. And what are the odds? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it it is. It's it's heart wrenching as a laboratory professional, especially knowing that the testing was the point at which it kind of broke down. I do see some hope. I was reading about some immunoassays that are being brought up now, which I was going to ask you to briefly explain immunoassays, but I'll take a stab at it. You basically are looking, you're using a different kind of testing. You're not looking for the pieces of virus. You're looking either for Mostly these are used to look for antibodies formed to the virus. You can also do it the other way and make antibodies to viral proteins and it's more automated and the turnaround time is faster. So the immunoassays are probably, I would say, like the workhorse of the clinical laboratory. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah. In in the clinical lab that, you know, docs are ordering tests every day. I mean, it's 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 a big part of what we do. So it's it'll be interesting to see as we move on in the pandemic, which version of testing will become more widely used? What Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, the you know, some of the pauses about, you know, the ELISA testing or the enzyme mm-hmm. testing that you're talking about is that it's simple, it's cheap, and you could probably make home testing kits where, you know, and you can right. either look for the virus or you could look for antibodies to the virus. 
um, mm-hmm, to see mm-hmm. if somebody has been infected and has gone over it. You know, it's always a garbage in, garbage out situation. So it depends on, you know, how the specimen is obtained. And, and immunoassay can, can often be quite sensitive, but uh, potentially not very specific. So it will pick up lots of mm-hmm. things, but not all of them will be what you're looking for. Um, right, right. So right. maybe as almost like a screening test and sort of like yeah. the early days of HIV where they did, you know, co- confirmatory and sort of more And that's often how thorough. they're used is a yeah. screening test. And then they, yeah. you do a, a, a more, you know, you do the PCR for confirmation. Although could you do, there wouldn't really be a confirmatory test to test for antibodies to the virus. Would there, wouldn't this be the sort of method that you would have to use for that? I think that that would probably be the most... I'm trying to think if there's one that you would use for antibodies. Because it seems to me like as we move forward, you know, for healthcare workers, especially, but also for people who want to say, go back to work, it's going to be so important to document who is absolutely immune. So I think that's going to be sort of the next, and there's several companies now that are bringing up these immunoassays. I don't really have time to go through all that, but yeah, well, they're using it for treatment right now. I think it was Mount Sinai. They were, Using an yeah. ELISA test to detect antibodies in patients who had recovered, and then they're and then giving it to the people who are really yes crumping and not doing well. Right. Yeah, yes. So all of these things I, are coming yeah. down the pipeline. Um, I hope so. I just I feel like like I said, everyone's assuming that these things are going to work. It's only going to work if the healthcare system is still standing. You know, <laughs> we we might need to give the healthcare system some time to breathe. Well, at I the do end of all this. But, I do yeah. want to circle back to. I think the FDA yeah. also uh, bears a great deal of responsibility for the testing delays because there were a lot of labs who were like, can we just bring this in house? And yeah. And the FDA was like, no, 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 no. Or Especially you up at Washington. I was reading some of the stuff about the university of Washington, you know, in Washington state and right. they, they have a very, a very impressive virology sort of research um, background up there. And it seems like if they had just let them run with it, they might've figured all this out a little bit sooner up there, at least. I don't know how it would have impacted the country, but. Well, they were the first um, to figure out there was community spread. They were doing an influenza yeah. study and they started to that, yeah. wonder, you know, could some of this, you know, be the coronavirus, right. but they were told that they right. couldn't test for it. And, and early labs, they were trying to do the LDTs or getting like 25 page applications that they were having to fill out for the right. FDA. Yeah. And yeah, as anyone who's ever had to do anything like, like I've, I've applied for grants and things and it's, I mean, I know that's not the FDA, but it's a similar kind of feeling where you just look at the paperwork and you think like, can any human being understand this is crazy. This is a lot of paperwork. So I feel like we've kind of brushed the surface, but we've come to some, some good points about different kinds of testing that are available and how this is going to become available as we go forward, I think is something we'll have to circle back around to. I thought about calling returning segments with prior guests back to the bucket, but I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> I'm trying to work in as many pathology puns as possible. Well, I guess I, I want. <laughs> I kind of think of back to the bucket as like uh, not a pleasant thing or sort of a punishment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> that maybe see comment that's one of my favorites there you, go. there you go yeah <laughs> i mean i do think there's a lot to be optimistic about i mean some of the yeah. innovations that we've seen just in the last few days the last few weeks have been impressive like when given the ability to move at speed people have like what was it dyson and their their 10-day development of a new ventilator 
that they're going to have I mean, how, in how amazing is that going to be? And someone someday is going to be able to say the maker of a vacuum company saved my life. That's <laughs> amazing. I do love, I mean, they're, they're very smart people, obviously. So it's an all hands on deck situation. Oh yeah. Um, and just the, yeah. the physicians in the online forums coming up with new ways to protect themselves or, or the Italian engineers that were 3D printing valve replacements for ventilators. I mean, these things. That, that story made me cry. A lot of things make me cry these days, but that story got me because I was like, okay, that's amazing. It's, I, that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. That's so amazing. I yeah. do feel like the U.S. has completely botched this from the get-go, but I feel like there's a good chance that we will have developed effective ways to treat this and that some degree of normalcy will return by summer. You and my husband, I'm a... Uh... I'm trying to be optimistic, but I, I've prepared myself for this to last for a while. You know what I mean? Just in my head. And then if it's not as bad as I thought, then I'll be surprised. We put people nice. on the moon. We can deal with this. I know we did. We used to believe in science too. So the final uh, segment of, of each podcast will be called Final Diagnosis, where we just sort of sum up our thoughts. So I'll go first so I can show you what I'm talking about. If you want to do one, you can do one too. My final diagnosis is that we have to do better. We're blind right now to the extent of the problem. And sometimes I feel when chatting mostly via text with my non-medical friends that non-medical folks don't really understand how out of control this could get. One thing that sort of rolls around in my head is that the data on when you become infectious is not really well known, but there is some suggestion that people who become symptomatic are passing infection before they become symptomatic. And that the thing that scares me is the totally asymptomatic people and them spreading infection. They they did in Wuhan, they said the levels of people who were totally asymptomatic was about 1%, but I don't know how many people never got tested. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then in the in a controlled cohort, which unfortunately ended up being the folks aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship, they tested everybody and then quarantined them and I think tested them again. So it's not like they people got away. 18% of patients who tested positive were asymptomatic. And I feel like that's a pretty good closed group of folks. You know, we knew where they were. We stopped them. We tested all of them. So 18% is a pretty high percent. So that's you know, one in five people who have this thing never know they have it. And I think until we can widely test everybody before they go back to work, I was talking to, you know, my husband tonight, I'm thinking, you know, I work at a hospital with premature infants and pregnant women and cancer patients. And for me, if I were a nurse who took care of preemie babies, I would want to be tested. If I knew that I had no antibodies, I'd want to be tested pretty regularly because how are you going to know if you're asymptomatic, you know? And I just, I think until we can test those kinds of, of folks who are in delicate situations and we're not going to be able to get our arms around this. So I think the moral is that we, we just have to test early and often. So yeah. Do you have any final well, diagnosis? I agree like nursing homes, you know, you want, yeah. you have the people mm-hmm. coming there or, or prisons. I mean, it's, uh, it's sort of terrifying and you have to wonder, yeah. I mean, 18% would explain why we have such massive community spread. Um, Wouldn't it? And, and that I was reading an article and a guy was like, his conclusion was, Asymptomatic spread isn't a big deal because it was only 18%. And I was like, 18%? That's That's really high. (laughs) To me, that's crazy. You know? I mean, well, too, and and you wonder what asymptomatic means. Because the the problem with this is that the 
the mild cases overlap with literally everything else. Like, uh, you know, I think I've, right. I've told you this before, but my youngest son has my allergies. He's been told by his allergist right. that he's allergic to life. And so he's always, <laughs> he's always coughing and sneezing yeah. and, you know, is that COVID or is that yeah. allergy? Yeah. I don't know. So maybe a lot of those asymptomatic people had symptoms they didn't recognize, but I will say yeah. some of the interesting things coming out, you know, we don't have time to discuss this, but the difference between men and women is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. The um, loss of yeah. smell and taste. Right. And, and how that might signal some sort of involvement of the CNS. I mean, it, there's just so much we don't know. It's well, yeah, it's shedding, you know, they, they've detected it in other settings, you know, like feces and things. And so it's, it'll yeah. be interesting you know, in a year from now to look back at all of the data and, and see what kind of conclusions have been drawn. I mean, it's, it's horrible and frightening, but also fascinating at the same time, which pretty much describes our feel. <laughs> Isn't it? It's like once the pathologist becomes involved in your life, you're, you know, it's not usually a great thing, but well, I, I want to thank you for coming on my first podcast. I had a lot of fun. I think maybe I'll have to have you back on on the regular so we can just check in with one another and basically just record what we've been saying to one another on text message, which is probably good for both of our mental health. But I'll let you run now. Thank you so much. And um, thank you everyone for listening. If you have feedback, you can visit my website, which is my name, Natalie Benet, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-B-A dot N-E-T because I'm witty. Or you can find me on Twitter at Natalie Benet. So thank you everyone so much. And thank you, Tina. Bye. Bye.